People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies, Reading, Guerrilla Warfare by Ernesto Che Guevara, Narration by Andrea Busco. Chapter 1. General Principles of Guerrilla Warfare, Part 1. Essence of Guerrilla Warfare. The armed victory of the Cuban people over the Batista dictatorship was not only the triumph of heroism, as reported by the newspapers of the world, it also forced a change in the old dogmas concerning the conduct of the popular masses of Latin America. It showed plainly the capacity of the people to free themselves by means of guerrilla warfare from a government that oppresses them. We consider that the Cuban Revolution contributed three fundamental lessons to the conduct of revolutionary movements in America. They are 1. Popular forces can win a war against the army. 2. It is not necessary to wait until all conditions for making revolution exist. The insurrection can create them. 3. In underdeveloped America, the countryside is the basic area for armed fighting. Of these three propositions, the first two contradict the defeatist attitude of revolutionaries or pseudo-revolutionaries who remain inactive and take refuge in the pretext that against a professional army, nothing can be done, who sit down to wait until, in some mechanical way, all necessary objective and subjective conditions are given without working to accelerate them. As these problems were formerly a subject of discussion in Cuba until facts settled the question, they are probably still much discussed in America. Naturally, it is not to be thought that all conditions for revolution are going to be created through the impulse given to them by guerrilla activity. It must always be kept in mind that there is a necessary minimum without which the establishment and consolidation of the first center is not practicable. People must see clearly the futility of maintaining the fight for social goals within the framework of civil debate. When the forces of oppression come to maintain themselves in power against established law, peace is considered already broken. In these conditions, popular discontent expresses itself in more active forms. All attitude of resistance finally crystallizes in an outbreak of fighting provoked initially by the conduct of the authorities. Where a government has come into power through some form of popular vote, fraudulent or not, and maintains at least an appearance of constitutional legality, the guerrilla outbreak cannot be promoted since the possibilities of peaceful struggle have not yet been exhausted. The third proposition is a fundamental of strategy. It ought to be noted by those who maintain dogmatically that the struggle of the masses is centered in city movements, entirely forgetting the immense participation of the country people in the life of all underdeveloped parts of America. Of course, the struggles of the city masses of organized workers should not be underrated. But the real possibilities of engaging in armed struggle must be 
carefully analyzed where the guarantees which customarily adorn our constitutions are suspended or ignored. In these conditions, the illegal workers' movement face numerous dangers. They must function secretly, without arms. The situation in the open country is not so difficult. There in places beyond the reach of the repressive forces, the inhabitants can be supported by armed guerrillas. We will later make a careful analysis of three conclusions that stand out in the Cuban revolutionary experience. We emphasize them now at the beginning of this work as our fundamental contribution. Guerrilla warfare, the basis of the struggle of a people to redeem itself, has diverse characteristics. Different facets, even though the essentials will for liberation remains the same. It is obvious, and writers on the theme have said it many times, that war responds to a certain series of scientific laws. Whoever ignores them will go down to defeat. Guerrilla warfare, as a phase of war, must be ruled by all of these but-besides. Because of its special aspect, a series of colliery laws must also be recognized in order to carry it forward. Though geographical and social conditions in each country determine the mode and particular forms that guerrilla warfare will take, there are general laws that hold for all fighting of this type. Our task at the moment is to find the basic principles of this kind of fighting and the rules to be followed by peoples seeking liberation, to develop theory from facts, to generalize and give structure to our experience for the profit of others. Let us first consider the question, who are the combatants in guerrilla warfare? On one side, we have a group composed of the oppressor and his agents, the professional army, well-armed and disciplined, in many cases receiving foreign help, as well as help of the bureaucracy in the employee of the oppressor. On the other side, are the people of the nation or regions involved. It's important to emphasize that guerrilla warfare is a war of the masses, a war of the people. The guerrilla band is an armed nucleus, the fighting vanguard of the people. It draws its great force from the masses of the people themselves. The guerrilla band is not to be considered inferior to the army against which it fights simply because it is inferior with firepower. Guerrilla warfare is used by the side which is supported by a majority but which possesses a much smaller number of arms in use in defense against oppression. The guerrilla fighter needs full help from the people of the area. This is an indispensable condition this is clearly seen by considering the case of bandit gangs that operate in a region. They have all the characteristics of a guerrilla army. Homogeneity, respect for the leader, valor, knowledge of the ground, and often even good understanding of the tactics to be employed. The only thing missing out is support of the people, and inevitably 
these gangs are captured and exterminated by public forces. Analyzing the mode of operation from the guerrilla band, seeing its form of struggle and understanding its base in the masses, we can answer the question, why does the guerrilla fighter fight? We must come to the inevitable conclusion that the guerrilla fighter is a social reformer, that he takes up arms responding to the angry protests of the people against their oppressor, and that he fights in order to change the social system that keeps all his unarmed brothers in ignominy and misery. He launches himself against the conditions of the reigning institutions at the particular moment and dedicates himself with all vigor that circumstances permit to breaking the mold of these institutions. When we analyze more fully the tactic of guerrilla warfare, we will see that the guerrilla fighter needs to have a good knowledge of the surrounding countryside, the paths of entry and escape, the possibilities of speedy maneuver, good hiding places. Naturally, also, he must count on the support of the people. All this indicates that the guerrilla fighter will carry out his actions in wild places of small population, since these places, the struggle of the people to reform is aimed primarily and almost exclusively at changing the social form of the land ownership. The guerrilla fighter is above all an agrarian revolutionary. He interprets the desires of the great peasant mass to be owners of land owners of the means of production, of their animals, of all that which they have long yearned to call their own, of that which constitutes their life, and will also serve as their cemetery. It should be noted that in current interpretations, there are two different types of guerrilla warfare, one of which, a struggle complementing great regular armies, such was as the case of the Ukrainian fighters in the Soviet Union, does not enter into any analysis. We are interested in the other type, the case of an armed group engaged in struggle against the power, whether colonial or not, which established itself as the only base which built itself up in rural areas. In all such cases, whatever the ideological aim that may inspire the fight, the economic aim is determined by the aspiration towards ownership of land. The China of Mao begins as an outbreak of worker groups in the South, which is defeated and almost annihilated. It succeeds in establishing itself and begins its advance only when, after the long march from Yinnan, it takes up its base in rural territories and makes agrarian reforms its fundamental goal. The struggle of Ho Chi Minh is based on the rice-growing peasants who are opposed by the French colonial yoke. With this force, it is going forward to defeat the colonialists. In both cases, there is a framework of patriotic war against the Japanese invaders, but the economic basis of a fight for the land has not disappeared. In the case of Algeria, the grand idea of Arab nationalism has its economic counterpart in the fact that 
nearly all of the arable land of Algeria is utilized by millions of French settlers. In some countries, such as Puerto Rico, where the special conditions of the island have not permitted a guerrilla outbreak, the national spirit, deeply wounded by the discrimination that is daily practice, has as its basis as a aspiration of the peasants, even though many of them are already proletariat, to recover the land that the Yankee invaders seized from them. This same central idea, though in different forms, inspired the small farmers, peasants, and slaves of the eastern estates of Cuba to close ranks and defend together the right to possess land during the Thirty Years' War of Liberation. Footnote 2. Taking account of the possibilities of development of guerrilla warfare, which is transformed with the increase in operating potential of the guerrilla band into war of positions, this type of warfare, despite its special character, is to be considered as an embryo, a prelude of the other. The possibilities of growth of the guerrilla band and of changes in the mode of fight until conventional warfare is reached are as great as the possibilities of defeating the enemy in each of the different battles, combats, or skirmishes that take place. Therefore, the fundamental principle is that no battle, combat, or skirmish is to be fought unless it will be won. There is a malevolent definition that says the guerrilla fighter is the Jesuit of warfare. By this is indicated a quality of secretiveness of treachery, of surprise, that is obviously essential element of guerrilla warfare. It is a special kind of Jesuism, naturally prompted by circumstances which necessitate acting at a certain moment in ways different from the romantic and supporting conceptions with which we are taught to believe war is fought. War is always a struggle in which each contender tries to annihilate the other. Besides using force, they will have to recourse to all possible tricks and stratagems in order to achieve the goal. Military strategy and tactics are a representation by analysis of the objectives of the group and of the means of achieving these objectives. These means contemplate taking advantage of all the weak points of the enemy. The fighting action of each individual platoon in a large army in a war of positions, will present the same characteristics as those of the guerrilla band. It uses secretiveness, treachery, and surprise. And when these are not present, it is because vigilance on the other side prevents surprise. But since the guerrilla band is a division unto itself, and since there are large zones of territory not controlled by the enemy, it is always possible to carry out guerrilla attacks in such ways as to assure surprise and it is the duty of the guerrilla fighter to do so. Hit and run, some call this scornfully, and this is accurate. Hit and run, wait, lie in ambush, again, hit and run, and thus repeatedly, without giving any rest to the enemy. There is in all this, it would appear, a negative quality, the attitude of retreat, of avoiding frontal fights. However, this is a consequence upon the general strategy of the guerrilla warfare, which is the same in its ultimate end as it is in any warfare, to win to annihilate the enemy.
Thus, it is clear that guerrilla warfare is a phase that does not afford itself opportunities to arrive at complete victory. It is one of the initial phases of warfare and will develop continuously until the guerrilla army in its steady growth acquires the characteristics of a regular army. At that moment, it will be ready to deal final blows to the enemy and to achieve victory. Triumph will always be the product of a regular army, even though its origins are in a guerrilla army. Just as the general of a division in modern war does not have to die in front of his soldiers, the guerrilla fighter, who is generally of himself, need not die in every battle. He is ready to give his life, but the positive qualities of the guerrilla warfare is precisely that each one of the guerrilla fighters is ready to die. Not to defend an ideal, but rather to convert it into reality. This is the basis, the essence of guerrilla fighting. Miraculously, a small band of men, the armed vanguard of the great popular force that supports them, goes beyond the immediate tactical objectives, goes on decisively to achieve an idea, to establish a new society, to break the old molds of the outdated, and to achieve, finally, the social justice for which they fight. Considered thus, all these disparaged qualities acquire a true nobility, the nobility of the end at which they aim. And it has become clear that we are not speaking of distorted means of reaching an end. This fighting attitude, this attitude of not being dismayed at any time, this inflexibility when confronting the great problems in the final objective is also the nobility of the guerrilla fighter. Footnote 2. The war fought by Cubans for independence from Spain began in 1868 and ended in 1898, with a period of peace from 1878 to 1895.